Hello, mainstreamers and cinephiles and everybody in between. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. And Operation Silver Screen is a go. Hello, welcome to Operation Silver Screen. This cinema-related operation has been created to clear our desks from stacks of open cases. What are these cases? Well, even being the film lovers that we are, Bright and I still have a huge backlog of must-see films that we still need to experience. So each week we'll tackle a film that either one of us or both of us still need to see. We will then provide a debrief of our week's mission, given our outlook on the film's popularity and significance, as well as providing our opinion on whether or not it is worth seeing and other fun insights. So Brian, what was our mission this week? Usually I would say to come join us for our most recent mission. Uh, However, this is a place that you do not want to be. A place of true horror with the grisliest of sights. Truly a test site of the devil's torturous methods, Texas. Or, in this case, a fictionalized portion of Texas. Texas isn't that bad, some would say. I don't know. I wasn't a big fan of Texas. (laughs) But this does take place in a fictional rural town home to Leatherface and his odd art projects. In Texas, Chainsaw Massacre. Chainsaw being two words in this instance. That actually tripped me up. I had some tough time searching up this movie because Chainsaw, this is the only one in the franchise where it's two words. So this is a movie that I've seen. However, Caitlin, I know that you have not seen this movie before. Why is that? Because you are a fan of horror as well. And one of your favorite horror movies is one of the popular slashers, Halloween. So why did you never go and check this one out as well? No, I haven't seen this film before. And as you said, horror is one of my favorite genres. And I lived in Texas for a little bit of time. So you think this would be one that I would have watched. But I did hear that it was a controversial film when I was younger. So that kind of put me off a little bit. I didn't really know what the controversy was. But I had this idea that this was a very gory film. And I don't have a huge issue of gore in horror movies. I think at times it can add to the overall tone and the environment of a film. But there's some films that just use gore the entire film and they just use it to try and seem edgy instead of actually having a real plot. So I kind of have that preconceived notion for this film, for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I know that it's a low-budget pioneer. It was very much the indie film of the day, but as it's been mentioned before, Halloween is my favorite classic horror movie franchise, and that also was very much a low-budget pioneer, so I didn't feel like I needed to expand my education in that way by watching The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I was excited to watch it. I was interested in seeing it just because it is such a classic, just because it does have such a claim, so I was glad I had an excuse to watch it for this podcast. You said that you don't like... The excessive gore. So I take it you're not a fan of torture porn or something just for the shock factor. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen the Saw movies. That's one fun fact about me, I guess. Another one that's I'm missing in my education. But I've never watched them because I kind of felt like I knew what I was going to get with those movies. I didn't think there was going to be anything that really shocked me. Yeah, actually, I've never seen Saul either. I didn't know that that was a common for shame for us. I guess we're going to be doing that on a future show. I guess so. Maybe just the first one. I didn't didn't watch Saul for the same reasons. I have seen my share of films that some would describe as torture porn and some that were kind of just for shock. Almost that snuff film, but, you know, it's a fictionalized and feature film. Uh, Yeah, because I did have a curiosity for a while. Not like a curiosity to see people torn apart. 
but just seeing those films. And then I just got out of it. It just became the same thing over and over again. But I saw this movie, I think I saw this movie in 2013 or 2014. I was watching a marathon of horror movies for Halloween, I believe, that I have not seen before, which is a marathon I can't really do too much because I've almost seen all the must-see horror films out there. But I remember watching this one and the other one uh, was a vampire movie that I'm blanking on the name of. Nosferatu? No, actually I have not seen uh, Nosferatu. It was a later vampire movie back in the 80s. Oh, so you're going to have to put Nosferatu on your for shame list as well? We are in this well, vampire you, movie I've once I can it. remember I've the title of. Yeah, for me, definitely. So like you said, this is one of the popular horror movies. And as to what the critics had to say about this movie, it actually has a positive score, especially when it's usually seen as kind of just there for that gore factor and kind of that beloved horror film that only horror fans fans really love. Uh, this has an 89% critic rating and an 82% audience rating on Rotten Tomato, so it is positive. And actually, it's interesting to see both the critics and the audience members agreeing on this film, especially for a film such as this. It has a 7.5 on IMDb, which is positive as well. Of course, it's a horror movie, and it wasn't until recently that horror movies were seen for a lot of its technical accolade, so this does not have any rewards. But it was, the one award that it did get was a financial award, sort of. This had a $300,000 budget and made $30.9 million. I don't know the inflation for that, but it's a it's a significant increase. It made a hundred times its budget, which is great for any film out there, especially one that's so low budget. And we talked about Night of the Living Dead recently and how that had a low budget and made in a massive fold of itself. But this one, like Night of the Living Dead as well, had its issues when it came to the money and came to the cast and crew gaining some of those finances because not many people saw the money that worked on this film at first. Because this movie was produced by a company that was actually a front for the mafia. The man only claimed about a million dollars of the 30 that they made. That way he kept the money and kept it for his mafia and told the cast and crew, yeah, you only got this bit. He did the same thing with the, a popular cult classic, Deep Throat. That's actually where it was first revealed that he was a mafia front. He did the same thing in that studio or for that film, and then this film got investigated, and they found that out as well. And eventually, four weeks after the release, the cast and crew finally saw some money, which was very well-deserved, seeing the kind of developmental hell that they went through for this film. This is regarded as one of the greatest influences of slasher horror. It's not necessarily what popularized it, but it's what influenced those that came later to popularize it. Rotten Tomato has this as one of their top 100 horror films, and if you just look up the top horror films and go on various websites, you will continually find Texas Chainsaw Massacre in that list. Did you find anything else additional, Caitlin? No, I noticed that it did gross that much for the box office, but I knew that the cast didn't see any of that money until much later, but I didn't know why. So I actually am really surprised by the whole front for the mafia story. So you kind of caught me off guard there. Like I said, I knew that there was some reasoning going on there, but I didn't know the whole entire story. 
Now, I did get a chance to look at some of the other films that came out that year. That's just something I like to do, especially with some of these older films that we're tackling. But I did see that Black Christmas also came out in 1974. And I know you can talk a little bit more about that as far as where the horror genre was going at that time period. I know horror was tending to go a little bit more towards realism, but I don't know if Black Christmas was also one that had a low budget. You would know a little bit more about that than I would. Yes, I was actually going to talk about Black Christmas and the influence this movie provided because it's kind of hard to tell the influence because both of these movies came out in 1974 and you can tell from future movies, you can tell what they pulled from each movie. I think Texas Chainsaw is more that popular slasher that you see while Texas Chainsaw Massacre has a faster pace while Black Christmas has a slower pace movie and actually Black Christmas was accredited to influencing John Carpenter for Halloween. So we'll go ahead and talk more about that when it comes up in influences that this movie had. Yeah, I was surprised with the Mafia as well, especially in the 70s. You know, usually when I think of the Mafia, I think about them in the 20s, and I don't think about them fronting as a movie studio, which is sort of brilliant in a way. It is a massive industry, so why not? And yeah, I think a lot of people were surprised as well, and that's probably why they didn't get investigated for a while. But The other downside to that is you're screwing over a large amount of people that are going to go ahead and find out. So it wasn't that great of a plan. And it was a pair of brothers as well. And I know that this film held some rank as far as films that had financial success as an indie film. And I'm not sure what the exact rank was, but I know that when Halloween came around by John Carpenter, it did beat it out of that position. Oh, wow. Wait, where did... Was Night of Living Dead on that list? Uh, I'm not really sure. I didn't see the full list. And I'm, like I said, I'm like, you know, what ranking it was. But it did hold that spot for a while until Halloween came around. I can actually see Night of the Living Dead not being able to make that list because the money is estimated. It's hard to tell because there's no one studio. As we talked about, the public domain was a huge mess for that film. So I'm actually interested, Caitlin, in your opinion first about this movie because... We we talked before the last episode in Do the Right Thing that we may have a movie that we disagree on. And I was thinking that it may be this movie. However, after my rewatch, I think we may have similar opinions. I am interested to listen to what you have to say about this movie. And for those who don't know about the movie, it's a rather simple plot. It's when I describe the plot, you're going to think, oh yeah, isn't that every other horror movie? Five teenagers, they're in Texas. They want to visit an old family home. That's been abandoned, or so they think. They visit the home, and during their time there, they run into Leatherface, who begins to cut them down one by one. And that's pretty much it. So, Caitlin, what did you think of the movie? And before we get into that, I do want to mention that the first part of our debrief will be spoiler-free as we talk about our overall thoughts on the film. But as we move into the classified part of the mission, there will be some spoilers on the story. But we'll be sure to give you a warning when we get to that part. And before I get into my actual opinion of the film, I do want to talk a little bit about what influenced the creation of this film. There are a couple different interesting facts about that. So there usually is a lot of discussion about how this film was influenced by the real-life serial killer Ed Gaines. But this is something that is partly true, partly not true. This is a serial killer who was known for using skin and body parts around his home as trophies. 
He was involved in a couple murders, but a lot of his trophies he did gain through grave robbing, which we can kind of see that parallel in the very beginning of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But this killer, and I won't even really say serial killer, I think he only killed two people. But Ed Gain, he didn't even use a chainsaw. So besides using human skin as trophies and body parts as trophies, there's really no comparison to be made between him and Loverface. But there are other horror movies that was actually inspired by this person, one of them being Norman Bates from Psycho. So the idea that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a true story and something based on a true story is not true. This is something that's completely fictional and that was just kind of added for the story within the film. So what actually gave the filmmaker the inspiration to make this film is that the director, Toby Hooper, he was doing some Christmas shopping one day. It was crowded and he saw a display of chainsaws as he was in the crowd and he imagined that the only way he can get through this crowd was by hacking his way through with a chainsaw. I mean, I guess we all get to feel in a certain way during Christmas shopping, but... This filmmaker was just like, all right, let me let me go make a film about that. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say that we've all been there. I don't think I've ever truly wanted to hack away a crowd with a chainsaw, but I get the frustration. Yeah, no, I definitely think we've all had some crazy imagination, especially when our patience is maybe running thin. I forget they're called. It's a certain type of immersive thoughts. Immersive. God dang, what are the thoughts called? Intrusive. Intrusive, intrusive thoughts. thoughts. Yeah, I think we've, a, a lot of people do have those intrusive thoughts. So if you have them, make sure you don't follow them and then make a profit off of them like Toby Hooper did. And as we all know, the iconic Leatherface in this film, he wears a mask made out of human skin. So that idea was also inspired by the personal experiences of Toby Hooper. I guess he had a conversation with a doctor one time who bragged that during his pre-med years, he would skin the faces of human cadavers to use as a mask for Halloween. And that is deeply disturbing to me. I think it's very gross. And I hope that person is no longer practicing medicine. You know, I hope he didn't keep a collection of cadaver faces because that's disgusting. I'm not going to judge the man's work. Could you imagine going trick-or-treating as a kid and someone opens the door and it's just a skin mask? I mean, have we not seen that and just not have noticed? We're just like, oh, cool leather face. Ugh, I mean, maybe. Just think about all the skin masks we've seen in our lives and just never noticed. But yeah, so that's what influenced the film, and so there's a couple other things besides the story of Ed Gein that went into this. But I guess that's a more widely popular belief that he influenced this film. For some reason, I guess people want this to be a true story. I know, like, BuzzFeed posted a video at some point that was like, oh, this is the true story behind the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I'm like, nah, that's a bunch of baloney. It's just not that big of an influence that it's a direct interpretation of it. So as far as my opinion on the film, and we'll go more into the controversies a little bit later in our spoiler section, but as far as my actual opinion, I wasn't a huge fan of this film. I felt like the characters in this film were really annoying. I think the second part of this film was just Marilyn Burns, who plays Sally, just screaming the whole entire film, and, and we'll get a little bit more into that as well. But it was just a lot of screaming, a lot of loud noises, and it didn't really amount to much more than that. 
And I thought it was interesting for me as someone who was anticipating a lot of gore in this film, there actually wasn't a lot of gore in it. And I read that Toby Hooper, the director, was actually aiming for a PG rating for this film. So it's pretty tame as far as gore goes. But in trying to angle things a certain way to avoid the gore and also just the lack of effects at that time, it just didn't look very good to me. The camera would be positioned at times where you think you're seeing Leatherface chopping up a body or bludgeoning someone to death, but the camera was positioned in a way that just kind of looked silly. You could tell they were just hitting the floor or doing whatever they were doing to mimic the action without actually doing it. It just kind of looked like a cheap shot to me, and you see this throughout the film. So yeah, I wasn't really a fan, and the things that actually creeped me out the most in this film were some of the animal shots, like the shots of the cows, uh, the opening scene of the armadillo laying the roadkill, just laying there on the ground. That gave a more eerie vibe than anything Leatherface was doing or anything that was happening to these characters. Well, Caitlin, looks like once again we have to disappoint our audience. This is not the movie that's going to separate us, unfortunately. <laughs> so, you thought I was really going to like this movie? It wasn't that I thought you would. I wouldn't be surprised if you had. Can you explain that a little bit more? Because now I'm curious. I mean, I can go... I see you going both ways with this movie. Like, you would appreciate a lot of things that it did as a pioneer and a lot of the dedication that went to the production. But I can also see you just seeing this film and not seeing much more else to it. You know, aside from the craft that's in this, obviously. Because I know we also, we have a kind of spoiling because we are doing a Halloween episode later this year for the final part of the trilogy of the remakes or the legacy sequel. But we don't necessarily agree on Halloween. I found Halloween to be, it was an all right movie. Like I respect it for a lot of things that it did. However, I think a lot of people took it and ran with it better. So I couldn't say that Halloween isn't even close to being that top horror film for me, but I respect a lot of it. Yeah, Halloween's one that we're, we don't agree on. So I love Halloween. I love Halloween as a franchise. Yeah, I may have to rewatch. Well, not may have to. I will be rewatching Halloween for that episode. So maybe I'll see it a little bit differently. I mean, I did go into it with expectations of it being greater. One, because John Carpenter. And two, because it is that horror classic and Michael Myers. So maybe if I go back in it a second time, I would have a better opinion. Kind of like with this movie though I like this movie a little bit more the first time that I watched it it didn't really change too much it went from me completely disliking this film to appreciating it more but still seeing it how you saw it there really just wasn't much more to this so this is a like I said like I said this is a simple story but it's pretty effective I mean it showed that it had a story that we've seen a lot of because it is that simple story that you can expand on. Uh, you can see and feel the decisions that were made to make this a horror movie stand out for its time. Like I said, the production and the craft is there and it's appreciated. It's fascinating how they try to make this PG. However, yeah, at some points it seemed kind of just cheap. Or not even cheap, it just seems like they skipped a step. Like I think this movie could have benefited if they put a lot more sounds into the actions that were being committed. I would also have to go ahead... And credit this movie for capitalizing on a common worst case scenario fear 
what if you accidentally walked in on a, a family of murderers? What if you picked up that hitchhiker that turned out to be crazy? A lot of that, you can't trust this person because if you do, this is what's going to happen, even though this is the worst case scenario. And there's statistics proving that usually this will not occur or most likely will not occur. But it fails to flesh out any characters or make them likable. So when they're hit by the tragic ends, which come quickly, this is a short movie and it doesn't, no, it does waste some time. But when it gets into that killing, it just keeps going and they take out one after the other rather quickly. Uh, But again, without them being fleshed out, you don't really care for any of these characters. Actually, the one that's fleshed out the most is the one I hated. And I was trying to remember why I didn't like this movie so much. And I was watching it with Devin and Franklin popped up. And I just turned on like, this guy, this guy right here is why I do not like this movie. He was annoying, whiny throughout, which was the intention. However, it doesn't make it a good attention. It doesn't make it a good product. So I understand why so many people have attempted to expand on this, whether it was the remakes and the sequels and the prequels and all the influence that it has had. However, there's a lot to expand on this, and there's a lot of backstory there, but it's not really that interesting. It's not that interesting of a movie. It's just watching teenagers get killed by a presumably unstoppable force. And I'm glad you brought up the screaming. I'm surprised that this movie wasn't accredited for the screaming, but that's probably because everybody was getting annoyed. Half of this movie, yeah, it starts with... Half of this movie is Marilyn Burns just screaming throughout the film. The famous dinner scene is just her screaming and the other the other characters screaming on top of her. And it was funny, I actually watched this movie with a friend when I first watched it. And she had to leave the room because she had a headache going on and this movie was not helping at all. This movie started to transform it into a full-blown migraine because of the amount of screaming. And also this, at the time... This was a smaller house and their bedroom was right next to the living room. So I remember getting frustrated with this movie because I had to keep turning up and down the volume between the dialogue and the screaming, even though eventually the screaming took place of the dialogue and I could just keep it down on one volume. Uh, But I remember that being a portion of my dislike for this film during the first watch. Now being in a home, a single family home, I was able to turn it up and not have to worry about anybody, but it was still rather annoying. I still turned it down a little bit. This is another movie that I respected for what it influenced, and I give it its credit, but I was not a fan of this like you said you were. Like you said you weren't. There was one character I liked, and I don't think it really has to do with her or her personality really so much. That character was Pam. I think she just had a cute 70s outfit on, and her kill scenes were, I think, the best. They were probably the most iconic that I could see in the film. So she did interest me a little bit as a character, but you didn't really like any of them at all, not Franklin or anything like that. No, the only one I disliked was Franklin. The other ones I didn't like or dislike. I do agree with you on Pam. Because I am a sucker for 70s fashion. And she had a great outfit. And Sally too with the with those platform uh, fluffed out jeans. I figure what they call it. Bell bottoms or something. I don't know. Yeah Pam was just walking up to this house with her full backless shirt. And I was like alright yeah she's pretty cool. Yeah she's cool. I like the, the 70s aesthetic. However I can't really give this movie too much credit. Because it was 
place in the 70s, so it's not like they really had to work to get the fashion. Like other movies nowadays have to rework the fashion to get that 70s feel. This was shot in the 70s. They had the 70s. Uh, the other characters, yeah, they're just there really wasn't much to them. Again, I think this is where other movies did it better, where you have these five teens and they show it better with the com- the camaraderie. God dang it. I think future movies showed five friends or a group of friends bonding more. And it isn't so much you have to like the characters to care for them, but knowing that other characters feel for them and understanding that, just feeling for the group as a whole that adds something to the movie. Movies such as Descent and Cabin in the Woods or Evil Dead. Those movies capitalize on those groups and probably owes it to this movie showing them the possibility. But again, this movie doesn't do anything with them. You really can't tell the characters too far apart. And when they start going down, they just start dropping. You don't really get any kind of time to see how it affects the other ones. Because it's like they they die and then someone goes searching for them and then they die before they even find the other person. But this being a horror film and being a slasher, what did you think about the way they were doing the killings in this movie? Yeah, I mean, I said before, you didn't really get to see a lot of the killings. They tried to pull off the movie magic shots to kind of imply it, but then you didn't, it just didn't work for me. You know, it really was against my expectation going into this film, but it just felt a little cheap to me. It felt a little dated. I wasn't a fan. Yeah, I think with them stretching for that PG rating, I understand. But if you can't get it, they should have had a backup plan and still went for the rated R. I think that kill was great when she, where Leatherface places her on the meat hook. But you don't really hear the sound. You just see it. And it's actually a weird cut the way they have to do it. And they do a couple of those. Like You see a chainsaw in this. You don't really see the damage a chainsaw can cause except for a door. The door probably gets it the worst in this movie. Actually, that door is a character because you see that door a lot. People going in and out of that same door. And that door put up a great final fight. But yeah, door doesn't beat chainsaw. I think one kill was really good in this. And I don't think we see it a lot where somebody suffers a bludgeon to the head. They're hit with a mallet and they hit the ground and they start having a seizure. That's something you usually don't see except for Midsummer did it recently. They actually did it twice where you see a head injury and you see the effects that it has on the body. So that was a cool grounded kill. And I guess they kind of filmed that one. They, I'm pretty sure they had to cut that one when they try to go for the PG and then they added it back when they went for the rated R. So I don't know why they didn't do that with the others because that was a gruesome kill right there. And then the other ones sort of just happened, except for Pam. That one's cool, but again, it just happens. So what did you think about the visual aspects of this film? One thing I noticed that because this was such a bleak and dreary film, you know, you had a lot of browns and grays, very subdued colors. But because of that, when you did have color, it really did stand out on the screen. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking about there was a field of daisies that they passed and the yellow just popped on the screen. Yeah, I think visually this movie sets up the atmosphere very well with those browns. It does look good for what it is. And they set this up to be kind of a mockumentary. I don't one of the first, and we'll get into that during the influences. They kind of made this look like it was an actual true event. Another thing with the visual I like is a lot of the set pieces. You've seen a lot of those human and animal trophies being set up. It really created an eeriness to this film that I think still stands today. Yeah, I think the production design in this film was definitely um, next level. 
And I think we can kind of get into a little bit of the controversies here of this film without giving any spoilers, but I say that production design of this was next level because the conditions on this film set weren't great. I know you said before that you have a respect for this film because of what went into it and how it was created. And I think it's actually the opposite for me. My initial thoughts after watching this, of course, weren't that great. But I thought that as I did more research, maybe I could find something in the craft and how it was created that would really give me appreciation for what this did for the horror genre. But then for me, the more I looked into it and the more I looked into how it was created, the less respect I had for it as a film. So let's talk about the set conditions. And they weren't great. Uh, These might actually be the worst set conditions I've ever heard of in my life. It was awful. So this film was made, it was filmed and shot in about a month. It was filmed in Texas in a Texas farmhouse in July, so that's peak Texas summer. I mean, I lived in Texas, you lived in Texas, you know how hot it gets, it's over 100 degrees sometimes. And this cast and crew, they filmed for 7 days a week. I heard that generally they worked for 16 hour days on this film, I know some days they did go longer than that. I think that's really just an average or a generalization, because I know having worked on some indie films, 16 days can even be short. They really work, yeah. So I know that for the dinner scene at least, that went on much longer than 16 hours. So you have cast and crew who are running off very little sleep at this time, they're not getting very many breaks. And as far as the production design goes, those are real animal blood, real animal bones and carcasses that were used on this film. Some of it they got from local slaughterhouses, but other things that they used in this production design was just roadkill. They would drive around and they would look for roadkill and dead animals on the side of the road and they would just pick them up, take them, put them into production design. And in addition to that, our talent, our cast members, they weren't allowed to wash their clothes through that whole month. There was some fear that things would change for continuity, some things were specially dyed, and they were afraid that they would get messed up, so they weren't allowed to wash their clothes at all. So you have this small Texas farmhouse with dead animal carcasses on the ground filled with sweaty, nasty people with unwashed clothes for a month. You can just imagine how awful that must have smelled. So that was just part of the conditions on this film set. Toby Hooper later on actually bragged that every cast member on this film walked away with some kind of injury. And I don't think that's really something to brag about as a director. Edwin Neal, who played the hitchhiker in this film, he had said that his experience on this film was worse than his time in Vietnam. And at one point he said he might just kill the director if he ever saw him again. So everyone was hating this director by the time production wrapped, because like I said, these were not good conditions, and they were not safe conditions. Gunnar Hansen, who played Loverface, because of the mask while he was performing, his visibility was impaired. And he also wore heels to make him taller, so in total with the heels, he was about six foot three. But there were times when he was hitting his head against things because he couldn't see, he was very unstable. So this just wasn't safe conditions on set, and that's not even beginning to talk about the dinner scene, which we'll talk about in our spoiler section because that, that's a whole nother level there. When I said that I admire the production, I mean more of the product of the production. Like, I, I respect the detail, like the going in and making all those trophies and really setting up the set pieces for this film and creating that atmosphere. The work conditions and everything, no. This 
these work conditions should never be repeated. We hear about a lot of directors who are very hard on their cast, such as Stanley Kubrick, but it's usually just pushing them to limits. This was a very unsafe set. Like, this was a danger to every cast member there for multiple reasons. Like you said, the fact that they had Gunnar Hansen, he was wearing a mask and high heels running through the woods at night with an active chainsaw, which actually fell on him at some point. It fell on the leg, but he had leg shields on. So there was this movie wasn't completely rid of safety, but still the friction with the chainsaw made the plates on his leg heat up and burn burn his skin. So no, I don't admire and I don't respect what he did to these cast members. I think he could have waited, got some more money, found some different ways to accommodate, or go ahead and film in a different time of the month. Not film in July of Texas. You said it's one of the one of the hottest times in Texas. It's one of the hottest times in the world. You do not want to be in that house, like you said, with the dinner scene. And the other scenes where they had rotting food because it wasn't like they were replacing the food. They didn't have the money for that, most likely. But they had the carcasses in there. And this was a house in Texas at 100 degrees with these people wearing the same clothes by rotting food and carcasses. No AC, no electric fans. Not even an electric fan. You know what an electric fan costs? $20, if that. Could have easily gotten some electric fans. But he wanted to go for that realism and yeah, that, you know, despite the product, it doesn't justify what he did for a lot of this. It doesn't justify any artist's methods. Yeah, this was a horrible set from the sounds of it. They, because they were wearing the same clothes, especially Leatherface, Gunnar Hansen, he had to wear the same shirt for the full four weeks of filming this to which when people went on lunch breaks, they would avoid them. They would never go near them because they couldn't handle the smell. People left the house gagging or actually throwing up because the smell was just so bad. And I mean, I've seen that before. I've seen people run from a house gagging. Uh, I've been in a house like that before. And that smell was bad. It wasn't, I think, at least for me, it wasn't making me gag or anything like that. And that place wasn't even hot or anything. And I just would never want to imagine what this smell could have possibly been. I mean, granted, there are some interesting fun facts when it goes into it. But again, a lot of it is just a lot of pain and suffering that people were going through. I agree. I just think that the extent that went into making this realistic was too much. And my thinking as someone who has worked on indie film sets is that you always want to make sure your cast is cared for. You want to make sure that they're provided for, that they're comfortable, that they have safe conditions. Especially when you're working with actors who are SAG, who are union. But of course, you're not going to have that quite so much on these indie sets. I'm assuming none of the actors on this set were union, and I'm not really too aware of the history of the union. As far as acting goes, it's something I have to look a little bit more into. But for me, this whole treatment just makes me cringe. It just sits wrong with me because it's just not how you treat people on productions like this. Yeah, and there was one person as well in the cast that just was not helping this at all. And that was Paul A. Partan, uh, who has sadly passed away. But he plays the character of Franklin. 
But it seems that I'm not alone when I say screw Franklin because a lot of people on set were saying the same thing. So Paul had this idea because he was a theater actor, actor, some may say, a true thespian. So that meant that if he had to play a jerk, well, God dang, he was going to play a jerk for the whole time. So a lot of people did not like him. However, Gunnar Hansen met with him years later and found out that, oh, no, that's not who he is as a person. And they became friends. But again, we talked about this before where it's funny how a lot of these people, these method actors, when they have the opportunity to play a jerk, that's when they want to fully dive into it and just go extreme with it. Especially when tensions are already rough and everything. Everybody's already hating their life. You really don't need to method act to get that out of anybody. Yeah, I'm sorry. This is not There Will Be Blood. This did not do anything for that performance at all. This did not warrant any kind of method acting. This is not that kind of movie. No, he is no Daniel Day-Lewis. And Daniel Day-Lewis plays an awful person in that movie. But he's enjoyable to watch, at least. In this, Franklin's just whining throughout. And you just spend extended scenes on him. I feel like that's the thing that irritates me most hearing about these poor set conditions because it's for what? I mean, I didn't even like this film. I understand it's a classic, but to me, it just seems like a wasted effort. Like, what was the point? Did the end result really justify the means? A lot for this movie, what it's praised for doesn't really have to do too much with the attention to detail and the acting. You know, we talked about the animal bones and everything in this film, but there's actually one scene where there's actually a real-life skeleton, like a real-life human skeleton. There was a rumor at that time that it was actually cheaper to get a real skeleton rather than get an anatomically correct prop fake skeleton, but I don't know, that sounds fishy to me. I think that's something that just kind of went around the rumor mill. And the way it's placed in the scene, nobody would have been able to tell. It's just kind of there, there's no close-up or anything on it, so you're not going to nitpick that it's not a real-life skeleton, a real-life anatomically correct skeleton. So, like, I just don't understand the point. I think a fake skeleton would have cost more, depending on how detailed he wanted it which it sounds like he wanted it detailed to scale so that would have probably cost a lot of money and the person probably donated their skeleton to science and they called this a science project i got a question for that though if you donate your skeleton to film do you still get a credit like do you still show up on imdb as the skeleton post i hope so because if you're donating your skeleton to a film you definitely deserve the imbd credit just up in the afterlife, heaven, hell. Hey, uh, I was a skeleton in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Watching with all his little buddies. Like, oh, there's me, there's me. He's like, you guys would not believe the set conditions. Actually, you know what? We're talking about rumor mill. I wouldn't be surprised if that skeleton was actually a cast member who started out full and healthy, but one day he just fell asleep in that house and nobody was paying attention. He just fell asleep in the chair and they came back and he's just a full-on skeleton. I the Texas that. heat just rotted away the flesh. <laughs> Ugh, gross. Really would not surprise me. So, going off to controversies and kind of switching topics a little bit, can we talk about Leatherface in this movie? When you talk about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you're talking about Leatherface. For all of these iconic classic slashers, there's always an iconic antagonist, and Leatherface is definitely the villain for this one. So what did you think about Leatherface as a villain? I think he is a terrifying foe. I don't think he's that iconic. 
but he is a terrifying force, that unstoppable force, that unstable force. And they really show it. They really show that instability that he has. And he is a dude that just towers over these young adults. It's those heels. Those heels and, yeah, just seeing that full force just running at you because he's a big dude. And actually, it's not completely fictional because he was running faster than Burns. He actually had to do things so he wouldn't catch up to her, which is why one of the scenes when he's chasing her through the woods, he just starts randomly cutting branches. And that was for her to just to continue running and get a, a gap in between them. So I think he is that, especially when you're going for realism, he's that guy that you don't want to run into. You don't want to be, let alone chase with a chainsaw. You don't want to be chased by a chainsaw by this dude. And actually, Gunnar Hansen did do some studying. He kind of did some method acting for this film. Two things with Leatherface and what kind of contributes to his appearance, which is that he did study mentally disabled children and adults. He wanted to study them because Toby Hooper wanted that character to be kind of like that, but he wanted to at least be respectful to people with mental disabilities so he did go and he spent time with them, studied their movements and everything like that, and contributed that to his character, to which people from the hospitals and the centers told him that he did a good job with it. It was tasteful. I don't think it's anything that's outrageous. I don't think you really can tell, aside from reading, that it's based off of those with mental disabilities. Something else to his character that adds to that monstrous figure is that Toby Hooper did give him lines. He told him, this is what you need to say. However, you can't use words. So Gunnar Hansen would have to have gibberish made up as closely as Ken to the lines that were actually being spoken, which was pretty interesting. There was actually one time where he was close to saying one word and Toby Hooper told him, no, that's too close. And he said that was my one chance to getting an actual line in the movie. But I think Leatherface is a... I can see why he is the icon that he is. However, I think he's probably the least interesting out of them. When I heard that he had gone off and studied children with disabilities for this role, it came off as exploitative to me. It made me think of a more recent discussion, well, somewhat recent, where Benedict Cumberbatch studied children with autism to prepare for a feeder role, I think it was, of Frankenstein's monster. Like I said, I think it was a stage performance. But he had gone on to say some not-so-good things about people with autism. And, and you know, when you're talking about villains in film, there's this reoccurring theme that if you have a villain, if you have an antagonist, they're likely going to have some kind of disability, whether physical or mental. It's a very problematic thing, and it just feels very exploitative for these actors to go and say, oh yeah, let me study you because you're disabled. Let me learn from you for this role. So that for this film just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. When you make mention of the movies in the past, yeah, I can see that. I was isolating this film for itself. I was isolating this film by itself. No, wait, that's redundant. I was isolating this film from the others, just looking at the character that they were trying to go for, trying to go for that unstable, that mentally unstable character. Because there's times where he does a killing and he's conflicted by his actions. And yeah, I don't think they needed to go the full mental disability route. And yes, a lot of times these villains do need to have something that sets them apart, that makes them more like the hunchback of Notre Dame. But I think here, with them not saying it completely, 
and kind of just showing it once, I don't think it's that bad. However, I don't think, again, it was completely needed. I think he could have still been that conflicted character and still have been that monster that you see without having to go the mental disability route. But again, I think it's also something that you won't actually notice unless you read about it. Yeah, I don't think he went too over the top with his character, and obviously there's never a diagnosis for his character either. It was just kind of these vague and generalized depictions of intellectual disabilities that he put into his character, and that's kind of what rubbed me the wrong way. But Gunnar Hansen also wasn't originally slated to play this character. This was actually going to go to another actor. Uh, He was all set to play, but then one night he kind of just got drunk and barricaded himself in his room. And it was then that he quit the production. And I read in some sources that he said that he didn't think the role was going to be good for him, that it was bad karma, that nothing good can come out of it. So that's when they went ahead and called Gunnar Hansen, and then he was able to put his own twist on the role. Dang, so he really did dodge a bullet there because, yeah, that bad karma could have been accounted to the set conditions. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And did Gunnar Hansen ever really do anything outside of Loverface? I know you said that most of his cast really didn't do much outside of this movie. Gunnar Hansen returned as Leatherface. Not sure if he did much more. He's done some other horror projects, but mostly the only thing you'll know him for is Leatherface. I do think his costuming was decently done. He did kind of have an eerie feel. I do think there was some good costuming in this film, especially toward the end. He's kind of in this sort of getup. So I think he kind of makes for a creepy character that way. Also, looking at his teeth, he's got some gnarly looking teeth that are peeking out through that mask. You know, I think the real eerie, creepy part of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the idea that you'll get stuck in the middle of nowhere and there's going to be these hicks that just come out and get you, that are going to come out and abduct you. Yeah, is this considered hillbilly shaming? Uh, I'll hillbilly shame a little bit. You know, you see a lot of these movies that obviously come from this film, but yeah. Because some of these were just, like the one dude cleaning the windows. I was like, why they had to make him look like that? Like, everything about that character. And they also made him very much a dimwit as well. But yeah, maybe there's some hillbilly shaming here. But then again, I would probably need to meet a hillbilly. Maybe that's just the way they actually are. Who knows? Hey, if there are any hillbilly listeners out there, please reach out to us. We would like to know. Is this a bad portrayal or an accurate portrayal to hillbillies? We talked a lot about how this film put a lot to its production, and it didn't really pay off. The methods, the product did not justify the means. However, this movie still had a great influence in future filming, especially when it came to slashers. What did you find as far as the influence goes? Yeah, I saw that Wes Craven created The Hills Have Eyes as sort of an homage to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And one interesting thing is that they actually have the same production designer, and that was Robert Burns. Yeah, I know Wes Craven has accredited this film, so has John Carpenter. Speaking of John Carpenter, like I said, there was another film that came out This same year, Black Christmas, which John Carpenter said inspired him to do Halloween. So it's a little hard to say which film had the bigger influences, but you can see things being pulled from both movies. Probably the most popular thing here that went into slashers was the serial killings, uh, which happened in Black Christmas as well. But here is with a group of teenagers 
going out to some place that they probably shouldn't be. You know, kind of seeing that harbinger and still passing through them, ending up in a town that they shouldn't be cut off from society. And speaking of them being cut off from society, this is one of the earlier horror films that went ahead and actually made social commentary, though I don't think this movie portrays it that well because I didn't know about the social commentary until I read it. And honestly, you can just say that about every horror movie and every other movie out there, which these teenagers are dying much like the youth are dying being sent off to Vietnam and that Leatherface and his family are the U.S. government. You know, rural America, that's where society is heading again. And America has taken advantage of people. Which this movie, there's nothing that hints at that. Again, it's just, te- uh, not teens, young adults dying. So you can say that about every slasher or any movie where somebody dies by somebody else's hand. You say, the subject was the government. The victim was the youthful human. That type of thing. But hey, it did go ahead and make social commentary. So that's this is one of the earlier films to go ahead and do that. Another early thing this movie did was that mockumentary setup. And I'm actually going to disagree with that. I know that a lot of people say that this film paved the way for horror as a social commentary, but I'm going to disagree with that. You know, I think I saw it in our Night of the Living Dead episode that there was some social commentary there, and we discussed it a little bit there that horror throughout its beginnings were always used as a social commentary. I mean, if you look at the source, the creation of what we know as the horror genre, which is Frankenstein, that definitely had some social commentary. It had commentary on motherhood and a whole bunch of other stuff. Then if you look at, let's say, early American horror films, a lot of times they were used as a commentary on immigration. Not a good social commentary, mind you, but it was still a commentary. It was this idea that the people coming into this country were viewed as monsters or abductors. So social commentary is something that has been part of horror since the beginning of the genre. So the idea that this somehow paved the way for that, I think, is just inaccurate. But I do agree that, yes, a lot of the social issues at the time were playing an influence on this film. Like you said, at that time it was the Vietnam War, so at that time things were beginning to be televised from that war, so you saw a lot of brutality there. And the director mentioned the Watergate scandal as well being an influence on this film. And from these, he got the idea that the real monster was man wearing a mask, that there's this evil sense of duplicity within man. There's the idea that all of this brutality is hidden behind a mask. So I can definitely see where the social commentary comes into play as an influence, but it's definitely not on the nose, which is what I think you meant. Uh, Yeah, it doesn't hit it on the nose, nor do I think there was anything. If you were to go ahead and I wasn't to tell you that this is commentary on the American society at the time, I don't think many people will come up with a theory that, that this is the social commentary. Yes, man is the greater monster, but like you said, that was something that was already done in Frankenstein and other films. Because I read that in the article that it said that, yeah, this was the film that paved the way for man is the greater threat. But no, I don't believe that. I think this is maybe one of the films, now that I think about it, it may not be that it popularized social commentary, but social commentary relating to what America was going through at the time, possibly. 
Yeah, I don't think it really paved the way for that either. Like I said, if you look at stories like alien abduction stories that were about immigration, or you look at some of these like creature features where these creatures were abducting women, there is a social commentary there that was oftentimes xenophobic. Yeah, it's something I would have to look into. I'm leaning more to what you're saying is the correct way, but now it's something that I'm interested in looking into to see what America created to reflect its society at the time in the horror genre specifically. But for right now, I am agreeing more with what you're saying. I don't see any, I mean, we, we have plenty of other influences and in commentary. I would discredit Night of the Living Dead because the commentary wasn't intentional at that time. It just so happened to be. Though, wait, no, because Night of the Living Dead was also showing how it was kind of showing the the faultiness in the American society. So yeah, something I wanted to look into. I wish I could remember what article that was that I read that it said that, because now I'm disagreeing more with it. Yeah, I think we talked a lot about it, that even if it's not overt social commentary, it's definitely there. What these directors take from the world around them is definitely going to show in their films, even if it's not something that we would necessarily pick up on looking at it from our society perspective, looking back on it. It could be, because also when you look at the way that the characters were dressed, they were dressed young, they were dressed like those hippies of Woodstock that were were protesting against the Vietnam War, and then this was rural Texas being classic America. So maybe it was a little bit there more, but I don't think, if you ask me to give you examples of social commentary and horror, this isn't going to be one of the first ones that I tell you about. So going a little bit into the influence that it had, I know we talked about Leatherface being kind of an iconic horror figure, but he definitely had an impact on pop culture. He's been in quite a few video games, including his own video games, as well as a character in franchises such as Dead by Daylight and Mortal Kombat. He also had his own comic book series in 2005. So even apart from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre's influence on film, I definitely think that we see an influence of him on pop culture and modern pop culture. You know, one influence that comes to mind is a video game that we both played, that's Resident Evil 7 Biohazard, and in that film you get the hillbilly family and they have body parts strewn all across their table, they have human remains in their fridge. That kind of cannibalism was a large part of that video game, so I definitely think that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre had its influence. Yeah, and I believe this movie is also beloved in the horror community, especially for being that pioneer of a lot of things. Also, this kind of brought an icon to horror. It brought a mask villain to horror almost that we saw again in later films, Michael Myers, Ghostface, even Nightmare on Elm Street to a certain extent. And of course, Friday the 13th, seeing those iconic masks and having something to put up front as a showcase for horror. Yeah, I don't think he's quite as big as those other characters you mentioned, but I definitely think he was one of the first to be that kind of icon, unless there's any others that you can think of that have come before him and had that kind of level of legendary. No, honestly, I would say Psycho to a certain extent. Mm, More so that you don't... More so, there's not a mask, but the face of the threat isn't revealed till later in the film. That's true. I definitely think Norman Bates is a character that serves in that way. But again, no one's walking around with 
his face on their t-shirt. Though I would like to see him in Mortal Kombat. That would actually be pretty interesting. Yeah, I want to say it was Mortal Kombat 10, maybe? I'm not entirely sure. I don't really know how many there are in total. But yeah, that was something that I read, but he was a guest on that. Yes, I forget if it was 10 or 11, because they had a couple. Almost all of them have been in it now, all the masks, except for Ghostface. But I feel like Ghostface would be the worst character to pick, because as soon as it starts, he just falls over. I was going to say, Ghostface isn't really that tough. (laughs) But this movie, we mentioned a lot of production in this, but this was another low-budget movie that proved that horrors can become successful. Horror films are one of those low-budget movies that you can make and still get attention for. Not like any other genre. You don't see that with drama, comedy. You especially don't see it with sci-fi because of the amount of production that it calls for. But horror, B-horror movies have its own genre. It has its own following to it. So when people saw this, they went out, they went ahead and picked up a camera and they started trying to recreate this. One of the big ones that we've seen is Blair Witch Project. Or is it the Blair Witch Project or the Blair Witch? The Blair Witch Project. Yes, the Blair Witch Project, which actually did a better job of making themselves seem real than this movie had. Also, this movie revealed a mafia front, and not many films, let alone horror films, can say that. So that's interesting. This also brought about the groundedness of things to kill you. Power tools. This wasn't a butcher knife, and there weren't guns like you normally see. And this is what kind of brought to the slashers having these homemade weapons. You know, sort of these like gritty, sort of these gritty weapons that you don't usually think about too much until they're put in the hands of somebody else. Like Freddy Cougar's fingers having razor blades tied to them, having that glove, or Jason's machete. We probably wouldn't have seen those type of things without seeing Leatherface making it work. Granted, I don't even think Leatherface needed a chainsaw. Like I said, he was a huge towering figure already. Poor door. Again, rest in peace. Like he could have just ran through that door now. Think about it. But wasn't there a commercial recently, maybe a couple of years ago? I want to say that maybe it was a Geico commercial. And it was just kind of poking fun of these teens that were hiding out in a shed that was filled with chainsaws. And they thought that was a good idea. They were like, let's hide from the killer here. This seems like a good place to hide. Yes, I've seen that as well. I can't remember who the commercial was for. But yeah, it just picked the worst hiding spot ever. Yeah, it definitely seems like an influence. I want to say it's Geico, but I could be wrong. It sounds like something that Geico would do. Who would you recommend this movie for? This is kind of a difficult one for me because before I I saw this and went into it, I I thought that maybe this would be a good one to recommend to indie filmmakers as a way of kind of going into that history of low-budget film. But I think there are better horror films to study that for Halloween being one of them, Night of the Living Dead being another. I'm not sure who I would really recommend this to. I don't think I would recommend it to a general audience. I guess I would recommend it to horror fans. You know, people who are very involved with the genre and kind of want to see that classic and the influence that it had. I mean, it definitely has its critic acclaimed and it definitely has solidified its place in horror history. So I would definitely just recommend it to horror fans. Yes, I had here general audience, but no, it's like a general horror audience. In my notes, I put that I would recommend this to the audience who still wants to see the slashers, but who have seen all the slashers. Or just interested to see where it all began. Or one of the places that it began. Other than that, there's not too much more to this movie. 
but horror being the small genre that it is, if all you have left are some B-movies, then yeah, go ahead and check this out. Alright, so we're going to go ahead and invite to the dinner table our spoilers. We're going to go ahead and open our classified folder. So for the remaining portion of the show, we will be talking and discussing more of the film, but with those spoilers attached. We'll be discussing why it was significant for us time, if it holds up, our overall letter grade, and then we'll go ahead and tease our next episode. So like I said, go ahead, watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre if you're interested. If you're not at all interested, honestly for this one, I'm usually against spoilers, but there's not much here to spoil. I feel like actually we already talked a lot about what we have to say about this film. I don't know how much more you have to say with spoilers attached. But yes, we will be getting into spoilers. So if you don't know in the order of which people get killed and who the one shady person is and who gets saved for last or they actually make it out, then yeah, go ahead, watch this film. It's an hour and 25 minutes. Come back to the other half of this show. And we will be talking more in depth about the poor conditions in the dinner scene in particular. So if that's something that interests you, please keep listening. Caitlin, one of the scenes that you wanted to talk about with spoilers was that dinner scene. What did you have to say about that? Oh, well, I have a lot to say about that. Can you go ahead and set the scene a little bit of that dinner scene? Set the scene for the dinner scene? Yeah, let me go ahead and just grab my crazed family members, come around the table and serve up some of your friends, I guess. So Sally is our final girl at this time. She's the only one left of her friends. She's running from Leatherface and screaming for approximately 30 minutes to an hour and runs into one of the store owners who just so happens to be possibly Leatherface's father. He then invites her to a dinner, consent not required. And actually, can we talk about that real quick? Because she brought a knife to a broom fight. Oh, you mean the fight at the gas station? The fight at the gas station when she meets the father and he comes in with the rope all casual, like, hey... I'm just going to tie you up. No need to fight. And she's like, well, I got a knife. And he says, you brought a knife to a broom fight and commences to beat her with a broom till she reaches unconsciousness. Yeah, I think the exact note I wrote down while watching this was watch out for the broom. Yeah, we don't give that broom enough credit because that scene had me dying. That scene was hilarious. That broom did about as much work as the chainsaw. And I almost feel like it was more effective than the actual chainsaw. So I actually have another question. So he attacks her with the broom in the gas station, and then he drags her into the car. And then in the car, he's just beating her with something, but I couldn't tell what it was he was beating her with. Like, we were just in that car for a long, long time if that shot, and he just kept hitting on her. And I just, I don't know. I was like, can we cut from this? <laughs> it was the broom. The broom? Like, the handle? He just brought it in the car with him? Yeah, yeah, because they accidentally broke the broom during the fight. The broom broke. And that's how he knocks her unconscious because he hits her like with the end of it, like the actual stick portion of it. And then he takes it in the car and he just starts jabbing her with it. <laughs> like he was having fun with that. He was having a little too much fun. And another thing I want to talk about before we get into that end scene is that the setup of where each of these locations were kind of confusing me. I do want to admire Sally's stamina because she just kept running 
She ran all the way from the house to the gas station. And I mean, they drove from the gas station to the house to begin with because it was like down the road, up the hill. So I thought it was quite a distance, but I'm not quite so sure anymore. Like I said, she must have good stamina because she ran into the house, up the stairs, down the stairs, through the woods, and all the way back to that gas station. So I don't know what she's doing. I want to know her secret. Her? I was worried about Leatherface. Again, mask, high heels, big dude. Active running chainsaw. Nighttime. Still catching up to her. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a serial killer, but I wouldn't be able to keep up. I don't know how he's doing it. He was wearing three-inch heels. I don't wear three-inch heels. I wouldn't have been able to do it at all. I would have just called it a day. Yeah, so if you want to become a killer and you're talking about it with your friends, you guys are brainstorming, and you're really pushing the high heels, and they just won't budge, show them this movie. Because you can still catch up to people. So getting back on track to this dinner, like we, we took a little stop at the gas station here to get a broomstick, but going back to it, so she's captured, she's brought back to dinner, she's tied to a chair, she wakes up, she's conscious, she then sees Leatherface at the dinner table along with Leatherface's brother and the father who's yelling at both of them because Leatherface was not supposed to be left alone because when he does, he damages doors and kills people. And the whole time the brother was out gray robbing and grabbing roadkill. So she's at this dinner table. She starts screaming. They start screaming back at her, mocking her, laughing at her. They bring grandpa down from stairs who we thought was dead before, but he just needed a little, a little taste, a little something to pick him up and get his eyes open. A little blood from young, young Sally over here. So is the scene set for you? Are you able to yes, you grab a chair? Yes, the scene is set. And just to give a little bit more context, the character, the actor who plays the character of the grandpa in this scene, uh, John Dugan, he was actually 18 years old when he filmed this. So he had to go through a lot of prosthetics in order to get that grandpa makeup on to make him look so much older. And it was such a long, grueling process for him that he said, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to have to go through this makeup process again. Let's just get this done. So they actually filmed all of his scenes within a 36-hour period, and most of his scenes fall in that dinner scene. So we know at this point this house stinks really bad. And this is probably the most emotionally charged scene of this movie. It definitely has the most screams in the movie. So that's a long time to be filming in those conditions and in that heat. And the cast and crew during the filming of this scene, they actually took short periodic breaks to go outside to get some air and to vomit because the smell was that bad. I mean, I couldn't imagine, and I don't know what kind of fresh air they were really getting because I know that Texas air isn't always that fresh, not in that heat. But as far as the onset conditions, though, this was definitely the worst day for the actress Marilyn Burns, who plays Sally. The actress at this period of time, she didn't really know her co-stars very well in this scene. And a lot of times directors will, will get actors together to get to know each other. They'll encourage them to, to get those familiarity going. You know, you just don't want them to be complete strangers most of the time. But in this scene, Marilyn Burns just really didn't know her co-stars in this scene. So at this moment, they're all yelling at her and screaming at her and doing these scary things. And she was actually legitimately terrified. The actress later said that she was actually beginning to question what was real and not real. And this was a time when snuff films were becoming more of a thing. So she actually had this fear in the back of her mind that this was actually a snuff film and that she was going to be killed during this scene. 
And you can really see the fear in her eyes in this scene. And at the time I thought, oh, she's a really good actress that she's be able to do this. But yeah, looking back on it after knowing this, I mean, that wasn't acting at all. So Marilyn Byrne was already having a really rough time, but then there's also this scene or this moment in this scene where Leatherface and the Hitchhiker, they cut her finger so that the grandfather can suck her blood. The plan for this scene was that they were going to use a prosthetic finger that was attached to hers and they would cut that and it would simulate blood squirting out for the grandfather to suck the blood from her finger. Very vampiric. But they were having a rough time with this. They were having a rough time getting it to work. So after several failed attempts, Gunnar Hansen, who plays Leatherface, as we said, took out a knife and just cut her real finger without her consent. And John Dugan, who played the grandfather, actually sucked her real blood. And he didn't find out about this until years and years later. So it's it's a messy scene we got here. And all the fear and screams that were happening were definitely real. And then there's another moment towards the end of that scene where the family wants to bludgeon Sally with a hammer. That's how they want to finish her off. And the actor Jim Cito, who played the gas station attendant, at this point in time, he's the one holding the hammer who needs to hit the character on the head but the actor was having issues getting into character with this he was having trouble getting into the brutality of the scene and he just really wasn't feeling it so at that point the cast and crew and Marilyn Burns herself who was probably just exhausted at that point and wanted to get the filming done with they urged him to just hit her for real the plan was to just kind of hit the side so it would look like he was hitting her but no they just said just hit her just hit her for real so that's what they did and this was a real hammer sometimes they use a prop hammer and sometimes they had a real hammer but the one that they they hit her with was a real hammer and I think they had eight shots of this so they just bludgeoned her in the head with this hammer and when the filming finally wrapped when the scene was done Marilyn Burns our actress just passed out she just completely fainted right away so I can't even imagine and this character was already injured a lot in the making of this film you look at scenes where she was coming out of a window and she got injured in those scenes so this was definitely a hard time for her and a lot of the blood and brutality in this scene was just real so what they actually did with the knife he didn't pull out a real knife the knife that they were using had tape on it and they were supposed to go ahead and the tape he had something in his palm that the blood would drip from but the packet that had the blood in it it just would not pop they kept doing it and doing it or it was on her finger it just would not pop so they said screw it they took the tape off without telling anybody and they cut her gunner hansen stated that at that point like he was just tired they were in this house for hours it was hot, it was smelly, it was grueling, and he was just losing his mind, and he went for it. So yeah, that is pretty disgusting too. The The guy who played the grandfather actually drank real blood, not knowing it. And this wasn't the only scene in which an actor had to go through something pain, painful. Pam, when she was hung up on the meat hook, she was actually held up by some nylon strings and some maxi pads. But she said it was still very painful and she applied that to her character to make it more believable. But it was a lot of this director wanting to get the most out of them by putting them through real pain. And directors have done this before. They have pushed people 
to certain lengths to get a certain shot from them. Spike Lee didn't do the right thing with Rosie Perez at that dance scene, just kept doing it again and again and again to get that anger from her. Stanley Kubrick, famously with Sally Duvall. However, this is the one where it's like very physical and is grueling, and it's not even just hours, it's days that they're going through this. Granted, Stanley Kubrick did with Sally Duvall during the set. Uh, not saying that was much better than this. It wasn't, it was lesser than this. But still, the actors didn't need to go through this. Like you said, it didn't really give anything to the scene. The dinner scene I found annoying because she was just screaming the whole time. I don't blame her for thinking it was a snuff film. You're out there in the middle of nowhere in the heat. Conditions are questionable. This isn't what you pictured a movie set to be. And now you got these people laughing at you and then you really have your finger cut. Yeah, it's a possibility. And during this time period as well, snuff films were being made and they were becoming more popular. Just to add to your list of directors there, another one would be Hitchcock with his treatment of Tippi Hendren with The Birds. And it's just unnecessary, the extent of the physical and emotional trauma that happens to these actresses and other cast members. And I would be interested in hearing about their recovery through this. This is a lot of psychological trauma. And if you're in a film and you're shooting a scene and you think that you're legitimately going to die and you're experiencing that kind of fear, that kind of trauma could give you some issues down the road. And also Marilyn Burns just getting hit in the head with a hammer to the point that she passed out. I hope that she received a lot of medical treatment after this, a lot of medical attention, both for her physical state and her mental state. Yes, and no one was enjoying this film. It kind of seems like maybe Gunnar Hansen was working a lot with Toby Hooper. However, him swinging that chainsaw at the end, that being that iconic moment, that wasn't scripted. That was actually Gunnar Hansen just venting out his frustration with the grueling process of this film. Yeah, and I think the final scene where she's laughing and she's crying as she goes away in the pickup truck for that final scene, which I think is a great scene, by the way. I think that's probably my favorite shot in the film. It's it's as much as I don't like this film, I think that that final shot was just extremely well done and it's a good ending. But I don't think that was acting at all. I think Marilyn Burns was just completely losing her mind and ready to be done. A lot of the blood you see too is actual her blood going running through the bushes and everything and the branches cutting her. She was actually sustaining cuts and that was actually a lot of her own blood in that scene. With the ending scene as well is a bit odd. For one, I wonder if the guy who was driving the cattle truck actually survived because she hops in the truck and leaves him and we know Leatherface has some stamina. But also, I don't know why they went in the car and then out the car. Yeah, I didn't understand that either. Why didn't they just get in the car and drive off? Yeah, that made no sense. Yeah, I definitely wasn't talking about that ending scene being iconic, just that ending shot and, and nothing else. And then just imagine you're going through all this and you don't see a paycheck for another four weeks. Because of the mafia took your paycheck. The, at first, I wouldn't have believed it if I heard it. I'm like, tell me the truth. The movie didn't make any money, did it? Let me guess. You messed up the public domain. The mafia. This poor cast and crew, I can't even imagine. This experience was just so trauma-inducing. It was a whole month. It was a whole month of just hell. Like I said, there isn't too much we haven't discussed about without the spoilers. There's not too much to spoil in this movie. Honestly, the only kind of thing I have to discuss as well is, would Leatherface have a strong case if it came to court 
because three people did trespass in his house and he was unaware of his attention and he is not in the right mental state. So he could have thought that they were going to commit one of the felonies that he could apply the castle law to. Probably in Texas. I don't know about anywhere else, but probably in Texas. I want that movie. I want to see Leatherface in court pleading his case and just gibberish. I think he would lose, though. I think he could definitely get the uh, the insanity plea. However, when he puts Pam on the meat hook, I think at that point you pass self-defense. Or he was just like, I don't know what to do with her. With her, She says she had friends. I just put her up there so she wouldn't go anywhere. I try my best not to hurt her. I think, too, as soon as he left his property line, like, it's no longer stand your ground or whatever it is. That's why I say only three of the kills. Especially, the only person he actually uses the chainsaw on is the person in the wheelchair, which is a little excessive. Yeah, I did think that, too. And I thought for a minute, actually, that Franklin was going to be the one who lives. Like, I thought that maybe it was going to be an interesting commentary on disability, but nope, not at all. No. And actually... I wish he went out sooner. Like I said, I hated Franklin. Also, just his interactions with the hitchhiker. Well, all of them with the hitchhiker in the beginning. And why they didn't just throw him out the minute he started doing something weird. Yeah, these characters just annoyed me. The moment he grabbed the knife, which Franklin easily let slip from his hands, that should have been the final red flag. Like, kick him out. The one thing, too, with the knife, I thought Sally would have accidentally kept the knife on her and then she was going to use it to escape at the end. But we talk about a final girl. This is probably the most useless final girl out there. This really isn't the first final girl because she doesn't fight back at all. What actually happens is Grandfather has a loose grip. It's pretty much like watching that episode of Spongebob where Patrick is trying to put on the lid on the jar. About that level of frustration with her screaming the whole time. I mean, I do have to give her some props for jumping out multiple windows, though. We saw that a bit with your next, one of my favorite horror movies, just going for it and jumping out that window. No, it was because we were all cracking up when we watched it. We watched that together, and we were cracking up when she just jumps out the window. But yeah, she just gets loose. That's all. They're holding her down, but the one guy lets go of her because he wants to pick up the hammer now, not thinking that I only have two hands and she's going to run away as soon as I do that. And she just jumps out a window. Which was done by a stunt double. How act, however, the shot where she lands, where the actress really lands, she still injured herself. Yeah, I saw like a behind the scenes visual where she was just kind of jumping in front on the ground and they were just throwing glass behind her. And yeah, that's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, there's already glass on the ground too, which would, would have to be because the glass would hit the ground first. So that's how she probably got injured. At that point, she's not even run away from... Yeah, but I do have to give her props for jumping out the window because I think that takes some kind of guts. You know, my luck is if I was getting chased by a serial killer and I went to jump out the window, I would just smack against the glass. I wouldn't even go through it. (laughs) Yeah, but it wasn't too much bravery. She had an enormous amount of adrenaline and just went for it. Toby Hooper Hooper was probably yelling at her, that's not the prop window, and she just crashes through it. (laughs) Probably. I don't care, I'm out. I do want to see that in the next screen, though, where they go to jump out a window and they just, bam, hit it. Uh, the chicken wire and you're next. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to say with the spoilers? Because honestly, I don't have anything. Going back to Pam, I do really like her kill scene, I think, when she's put on the meat hook. That's probably one of the more iconic moments in the film. 
But I also really like the scene where she's coming up out of a freezer and the scene he has a freezer that's like sits on the ground. You see it in a lot of horror movies and other kinds of movies, but I've never actually seen someone in real life have a freezer like this. But so a character comes looking for Pam because she's gone missing and he opens up the freezer and she just kind of arises out of it, kind of crazed, kind of zombie-like. And later on, after the guy gets chased away, Leatherface comes back and just kind of tucks her back in there, just kind of shoves her body back into the freezer. And I kind of thought that was a good moment. I like that too. However, it didn't make sense because there was some knocking going on. But when the refrigerator is opened, she's not knocking or anything. She just comes up screaming. Yeah, but it was a fun scene to watch. Did you know that there is there is a word meaning to throwing a person or thing out of a window by assassination? No. It's, uh, mispronounce it, but defenestration, defenestration. Interesting. No, I didn't know that was a term. I learned that from an episode of Spectacular Spider-Man. It starts the episode off with that and Spider-Man being thrown out a window by the Green Goblin. Interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of it in this film. A lot of defenestration. So a lot for why this movie is significant, it mirrors why this movie had the influence that it did. It was a new type of horror It had that low budget, which some films have done before. But again, it's kind of brought it back like, hey, you can also do this at home. Everybody will hate you, but you can do it. It had that mockumentary that we later saw in Blair Witch Project. And it was that pioneer for slashers. People haven't seen it before. And you can tell that it was significant for its time because people did not like this movie. This movie was banned in several countries and it was also pulled from several theaters. Is there anything that you found for this movie to be significant for its time? Yeah, I agree it was important to the slasher genre and to low-budget films in general. But it also set a sort of realism to the genre. And I haven't seen Black Christmas, or if I have, I don't really remember it. But I think that's something that's interesting and kind of significant, but it has this real-life feel to it. And do you think this movie holds up? Because this is known as one of the best horror movies. This is known as one of the scariest movies do you think it holds up in any aspect? I know you're saying in quality. I know you wouldn't agree. And actually, I don't even think back then the quality really held up. But what what are your opinions? What's your opinion? A lot of the conversation around this is that it's a very brutal film. And that's why people kind of say it holds up. But I kind of disagree because there's not a lot of gore. And there's not a lot of budget to really show that brutality for me. So I don't think it really holds up. Though I know many people say that it does. But also just with it, like I said, it's treatment of people with disabilities and the things that went on behind the scenes. I don't know. I just don't think it holds up, personally speaking. And I know that there will be many who disagree with me. Because it's very much a beloved film in horror circles. But yeah, it just didn't do it for me. Many horror films have taken this property and taken what is set up and ran with it even better. So it still deserves a credit, but... Yeah, this is, I mean, it holds up in look and things, but as far as quality goes, not very well. I would say the mental disability depiction is not good, and I would say that it would affect the way this holds up if they mentioned that more during the film. Like, if they gave a reason, if the father said, well, the reason my son is like this is because he was born with this mental disability, then I'm like, whoa, no, okay, time out, That's, that's not right. As far as the horror goes, yeah, there's just some things missing in this film to keep it horrifying. However, Devin did get a jump scare. Did he? Uh, Yeah, one caught him off guard. Leatherface popped up in one part and it got him. 
And I'm saying that, but we know I jump a lot. I'm a jumper. I am too, but this one didn't really get me with any jump scares. Yeah, I don't think this one, even the first time I watched it, got me with any jump scares. Uh, but I was surprised to see that, because usually, usually he doesn't jump. Usually I'm the one that's jumping and everything, so it's interesting to see that this got him. So it can still work for some people, and it's still an eerie film. It's not a movie, as far as horror goes, and the PG that they were going for. I think nowadays this would be a PG-13 film. They didn't have it during the time of making this. They didn't have that rating yet, PG-13. I still wouldn't let children watch this movie. So that says something about the horror is still there. But yeah, it falls short of what we see nowadays and what we've seen during that time period as well. The scariest part for me was just that shot of the cows in the slaughterhouse. And maybe not scary, but it's definitely the eeriest part of the film. And I don't think that was really intended to be the eeriest part of the film. So, but they got me. The spooky moo-moos. The spooky moo-moos, yes. Also, that poor armadillo, because watching this film, I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of weird how they get this armadillo. But now I just learned about this film. They probably just got off the side of the road somewhere and doused it with some fake blood and called it a day. Yeah, I was questioning a little bit, because I have seen some dead armadillos before. Actually, I've seen them for the first time last year in Missouri, of course. They're so places. cute. I didn't even know they had armadillos. It was a little bit different than what I saw, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess that holds up probably because it was a real armadillo. I think the trophies hold up because they were using actual real bones and presumably a real cast member that died and decomposed on set. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think there are parts of the story that do hold up. And I think this is a film where I'm actually more excited to see the remake. I would be more excited. And we actually have that episode coming up, which is why we're watching this movie instead of Breathless. Which, if you guys ever want to say that we're pretentious and we only do the high class of films, just remember, we replaced Breathless with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We are (laughs) a diversified podcast and spectators of film, if anything. Yeah, we originally had Breathless scheduled. I don't want to say if I am excited or not, because that is a portion of the show that we talk about on the legacy sequels and remakes. But this does not have a good track record of remakes. And we'll go ahead and get in more into that because there's a whole nother discussion of what will work and what doesn't work and things like that. But I can see why there'd be some excitement to see a remake and I can see why they tried so many times. I think parts of the narrative hold up or at least the idea of the story, maybe not the execution, but just the idea of being stranded in the middle of nowhere, stranded in this rural area and the things that can happen to you. I think that idea kind of holds up, which is why I kind of look forward to seeing this with better execution with more modern filmmaking techniques, with a cast who may be better actors, we'll see. I don't want to say completely that these were bad actors in this film, but they weren't given much to work with either. And for Marilyn Burns, I guess her best acting came out when she was truly terrified. Also a different director. I don't think anything about Toby Hooper has given me a good opinion about him. Is Toby Hooper still alive? I didn't think he was. I thought he passed away a couple years ago. Yes, he passed away a couple years ago. I I mean, he did Poltergeist. Or did Steven Spielberg do Poltergeist? Nobody knows. <laughs> you never heard about that controversy? of? No. What's the controversy? A lot of people think that Poltergeist was actually directed by Steven Spielberg. Because Steven Spielberg has such an influence on that movie 
like assisting with he it. He helped, I've seen Poltergeist. He helped write it. Yeah, and when you watch Poltergeist, you think, oh, this is this a Steven Spielberg film? It has that look, that feel to it. But just how much he was on set, people question how much of it really is Steven Spielberg's mo- movie or if, like it's credited, belongs to Toby Hooper. Interesting. I mean, I could believe it. Oh, I could too. And just think about like the different directors. Like, I think we usually hear good things about Steven Spielberg. I mean, we hear great things about Tom Hanks, and he works with Steven Spielberg all the time, so you know that's a good set. You know, Tom Hanks would not spend his time in a 100-degree hothouse. Speaking of this film, what would you rate this film? I'm going to give this an E, which I think is our lowest rating. I was going to be nice originally and give this a D, D minus, but everything that went down in this filmmaking process just makes me so angry. And I guess it's kind of on a personal level because I've worked on indie films and just the conditions on this set just make me so angry. Story, I guess there's some things that kind of work, but it's just not enough to redeem this at all. And it just makes me so mad. And I, I hope that the hardcore horror fans out there, they don't come after us because I know they get pretty passionate, but I just, I can't stand this movie. That whole treatment on set was just awful. So I was kind of bouncing around before watching this again. I would have probably gone E from what I remembered. And then when I finished it freshly again, the second time, I was thinking a C- minus with some extra points for what they really did do. However, talking however talking with you and having done the research with it as well and finding out what happened on set, yeah, I would have to take away those points for detail because they were made in such a way that wasn't necessary. But still looking at the overall quality of film, I think so many movies have just thing, done things better. I think this movie deserves a D, which is still passing as a movie because I still recognize it for being the pioneer that it is. But I didn't really enjoy this film. I'm not a huge fan of it. I think, I don't think, I am confident that... My opinion is a D in conclusion. I'm surprised to see you go E. I was really hoping that our E would be broken out for, I don't know. I just, I didn't think this would be the E. Like I said, this just hits a personal note for me because I've worked on indie films. I've worked on my own personal film projects. And I just always wanted to make sure that my talent was cared for, provided for, that they were safe and comfortable with what they were doing. And this was just not it at all. And I think just as a director, if you have to rely on this kind of experience in order to tell your story and get your story across, you're just not a talented director, period. Not at all. I don't think there's any talent in that. It's just lazy. Ugh, it makes me mad. I agree. There isn't much talent. Other than setting up that atmosphere, getting the the worst performances out of people... Not saying that it's their worst, but getting like that pain and suffering from them. It's not impressive when you actually put them through pain and suffering. That's like saying, hey, I want you to act like someone who's been stabbed. No, that's not good enough. I'm actually going to stab you and film it. It doesn't make you good. That just makes you, honestly, you're doing a documentary at this point like you are. You're almost committing the crimes that this movie had. I had more respect yeah, for the group. and I mean... If I didn't know this background, I would think, oh, that's some pretty decent directing, but he was able to get those emotions out of her, especially in that dinner scene. I mean, other than the screaming, I thought her facial expressions were really good, but learning what he had to do to get that out of her, it's just not good directing. And I think that 
it brings up the question, I can see somebody asking us this about how much of the production actually goes into our rating and quality of the film and why is it that the direction is important. And I would say because if we're praising a film for what it has done, then people would think that it would justify the means, such as Do the Right Thing with Rosie Perez. If we praise that movie and ignore that, then people would think as long as you make a good film, you can do these things to people. And no, you can't. As far as the person themselves, we talk about somebody like Roman Polanski, that's a discussion for another day. But when it comes to the actual production and the safety and enjoyment of being on set, then yeah, it's you do kind of have to take away points from it, especially when you endanger people. Like you really endangered people. And this is going to be brought up again when we're watching some other films. We watch some Stanley Kubrick films because I will defend some of that to a certain degree. But I think this is on a whole nother level. Someone could have literally been killed or disfigured on this set. Yeah, they're very lucky, especially with the head trauma in that last scene. But something more serious didn't come out of this. Yeah, we need to remember that film is one, a collaborative process, but also it's a job. It's a job too. If this were any other workplace, industry, we would be quick to say that this is not a good work environment. But for some reason with film, we tend to give it a pass because of the end product. We think that the ends justify the means. And we just can't think that way. And when we talk about awards coming up, awards season, we're awarding all things like direction, the technical aspects, cinematography, and none of that's going to work together in unison unless you have that collaborative process, unless you have an environment where people can feel free to work together in a way that's comfortable and safe. So it's really something you have to recognize and discuss. Couldn't agree more. It definitely is a is a project, just like any other project, construction, or software. And you see a lot of companies now under fire for that sort of thing, and film should be no exception. Yeah, you see a lot of video game companies recently. Well, that concludes the debrief for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And make sure to check us out at our next debrief for Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind in celebration of Earth Day. A little bit early, but never too soon to celebrate the planet in which we live on. This is going to be a first in which it's a movie that I have never seen, but Caitlin has seen. So I'm very interested in this one and her recommendation. Until then, you can find us on our social media, on Twitter and Instagram at OpSilverScreen or Facebook at Operation Silverscreen. You can also find us on our letterboxes. For Caitlin, it's going to be Coffee Spoon Kate. That's Kate, C-A-I-T. And then for myself, it's going to be Swank Seal, capital S, capital S. Till next time, guys. See ya.